From Chopsticks Alley, I'm Zach Anderson. These are our stories. When you think about Pacific Islanders, what comes to mind? Do you think of coconut bras and surfing? Perhaps sapphire waves and tiki torches? Or plastic hula girls jiving to the rhythms of a dirt road? When I think about Pacific Islanders, I think about the Austronesians. 5,000 years ago, they sailed across the Pacific to thousands of islands thousands of miles apart from each other. Today, many of their descendants are the peoples of Polynesia, Micronesia, and Melanesia, or as they are referred to today, Pacific Islanders. The Polynesians were the greatest sailors the world has ever known, charting over 118,000 square miles of the Pacific, from the volcanic peaks of Hawaii in the north, the grasslands of Rapa Nui in the east, and in the west, Aotearoa, New Zealand, where the haka echoes through valleys and mountain ranges that inspire the imagination. According to Guam's Office of Veterans Affairs, at least one in eight adult Guamanians is a veteran, among the highest percentages of all U.S. states and territories. In Micronesia, Chamorros from Saipan, Rota, and Guam fight on the front lines of American wars, as well as on the front lines of climate change. You know is that climate change is not just our problem. No, we are co-owners, co-creators, and co-authors in this story, and it can have a very different ending from what I fear. Then there are the descendants of Austronesians who sailed to Fiji, New Guinea, and the Solomon Islands. They encountered other groups who migrated much earlier before them. Today, we know these islands as Melanesia. Today, there are over 1.2 million Pacific Islanders in the United States. But the story of how they came here is more complicated than war, migration, or anything in between. The reason we did this episode is because Pacific Islanders have not always been included in conversations about AAPI issues. Yes, there are fewer than there are Asian Americans, but that does not make their stories any less important. This week, we talk about the Hawaiians and the Chamorros of the Mariana Islands, especially the island of Guam. This is Quentin Kayabia reading An Agony of Place by Hunani K. Trask. There is always this sense, a wash of earth, rain, palm light falling across ironwood sands flying and blowing to an ancient sea. I hear them always, with fish hooks and nets, dark, long, red canoes gliding thoughtlessly to sea, and the still, lush hills of laughter buried in secret caves, bones of love and ritual and sacred life, a place for the mono, the puyo, the o'o, for the smooth, flat buaku for a calabash of stars, flung over the Pacific, and yet our love suffers with a heritage of beauty in a land of tears where our people go blindly servants of another race, a culture of machines, grinding visions from the eye, thought from the hand until the tight silence descends wildly in place. <laughs> 
1778, when Captain Cook became the first European to land on the islands, the Hawaiian culture was already more than 2,000 years old. Cook died after a disagreement with a chief led to a close-quarter melee between his crew and the native Hawaiians. But this is most likely not the story most people have heard. The most famous story claims that the native Hawaiians believed Cook was a god, stuck in human form. So, they killed him so that he would be released. Cook's death and the myth surrounding it represents an era of Hawaiian history that would change the ancient society forever. When I look at the myth, I don't see it as a quirky mistake of historians. To me, it's just one part of many in a mission by Westerners to control the narrative of Hawaiian history. In 1795, King Kamehameha I founded the Kingdom of Hawaii after a series of wars to unify the islands, which were won using weapons supplied to him by white traders. To ensure that his kingdom would survive after his death, Kamehameha I began trading with whites, or haoles, that would visit the islands for various reasons. Some were mariners who used Hawaii as a way station to resupply and rest. Many did not stay long and would continue with their voyages. However, a small number did stay and married native Hawaiian women. Some came as missionaries who intended to convert native Hawaiians to Christianity. In 1824, the Queen Consort Ka'omanu converted to Christianity and encouraged her subjects to do the same. She was baptized a year later and took the name Elizabeth. In addition to conversion, the missionaries also worked to suppress and discourage converts from practicing their culture. In 1830, their influence resulted in the ban of public performances of the hula, which missionaries believed was a heathenistic dance rooted in paganism. Sustained these seagoing people, especially on their long voyages. Sugarcane. The, the Haole presence also resulted in the founding of giant sugarcane plantations. Since the native Hawaiian population could not keep up with the planters' demands for cheap labor, they imported it from elsewhere, most notably from Japan. <laughs> China, the Philippines, and Portugal. The planter class also imported smaller numbers of laborers from Korea, Puerto Rico, Norway, Germany and black communities in the American Deep South. They believed that bringing in so many different nationalities to work in the fields would keep their workforce from organizing. While some plantations went as far as to segregate their workforce by nationality to pit against each other, others relied on the major language gaps that already kept workers divided. For the interview, just speak uh, as you would. But even so, as time passed, the laborers began using a hybrid of all the languages on the plantation to communicate with each other and the bosses, called Pigeon English. I don't have money, so later on I'll pay her. <laughs> When my income tax return and then I get the kind of money, then I will give some. Okay, it's okay. And now do we say, it's okay. 
These demographic developments, as well as encroaching Haole influence, sparked a fervor for a unique national identity called the First Hawaiian Renaissance. Despite appointing Haoles to key positions in his government, King Kalakaua would rule against their advice and wishes in order to revive native Hawaiian practices and knowledge as the basis for Hawaiian identity. This started with the abolition of the ban on hula in 1874. The first renaissance also resulted in the formation of Kamehameha schools. After the death of Princess Bernice Pahui Bishop in 1884, she directed in her will that revenue from the bulk of her land holdings be used to establish and operate schools that provided Native Hawaiian children a Western-style education enhanced by Hawaiian cultural practices. However, the white hunger for power persisted in Hawaii. In 1843, Lord George Pollitt entered Honolulu Harbor and demanded that King Kamehameha III cede power to the British crown. This incident lasted until July when Paulette's commanding officer restored sovereignty back to Kamehameha. However, in 1893, almost a century after its formation, a Haole-backed militia overthrew the Kingdom of Hawaii. Five years later, Hawaii was annexed by the United States, formally abolishing its sovereignty. From that point, white rule worked to eradicate the Hawaiian culture. The Hawaiian language was banned, and land that had originally collectively belonged to the Hawaiian people was developed into more plantations and eventually vacation resorts. Let's join John on a quick trip round Hawaii with its modern hotels, buildings, and the lovely Waikiki Beach. In the early 20th century, an artificial culture developed that portrayed Hawaii as a tropical paradise. For most of that time, the world saw Hawaii as a vacation hotspot that, conveniently, existed exclusively to entertain the West. Kapiolani Park, where there's a hula dance. It's colorful, gay, and the air is heavy with the perfume of... Sacred practices like the hula were reduced to shows for the viewing of tourists, which also fetishized Hawaiian women as exotic temptresses. To make things even weirder, this artificial culture was culturally appropriated in 1930s California with the popularity of tiki rooms. In the tiki 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 room, in the tiki 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 room, all the birds sing word and the flowers croon. In the tiki 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 room. With all that said, it's important to note that Native Hawaiians didn't just allow this to happen. During the latter half of the 20th century, the essay On Being Hawaiian by John Dominus Holt inspired readers to have pride in Hawaiian heritage and culture despite decades of mockery and stereotyping. This essay has been cited as the driving force behind the second Hawaiian Renaissance. As a result of the Renaissance, musicians like Winona Beamer, Gabi Pahinui, and the Sons of Hawaii composed music in the Hawaiian language that worked against tourist culture. Traditional forms of the hula also experienced a revival during this period this time emphasizing the dance as opposed to the music.
Besides the cultural impact, the Renaissance was also driven by agricultural and ecological practices called Malama Aina. These practices encouraged human activity to work alongside the island's ecosystems and maximize ecological sustainability. We will never forget any more than the people in Latvia and Lithuania and Estonia forgot, any more than the Maori of Aotearoa forgot. The U.S. civil rights movement that created ethnic studies programs at colleges and universities also influenced Hawaiian academics like Hunani K. Trask, who in 1977 founded the Hawaiian Studies Program at the University of Hawaii Manoa. We cannot say any longer, oh, they are Hawaiian, make nice, aole, aole. Hawaiians were fierce. We have been so brainwashed with missionary bullshit. Be nice. The Fifth Movement continues to be practiced even after the 1980s, which most academics consider the Second Renaissance final days. From an astronomer's perspective, Mauna Kea is the perfect place. Since the 1964 construction of research telescopes on the peaks of Mauna Kea, Native Hawaiians and their allies have protested further development of the mountain. At 14,000 feet, the telescopes sit in very dry air, above 40% of the atmosphere. Though the state government promised to stop building, it approved the construction of a third telescope in 2014. In response, Protesters blocked the road leading to the site in October of that year. Since then, there have been several attempts to block construction of Mauna Kea, with each time resulting in the state government halting the project and then starting up again. The protest in 2019 went viral and gained support from celebrities like Jason Momoa and Dwayne Johnson. What I was able to walk away from, I looked at this whole scenario, it's more than a telescope being built, it's humanity and it's human beings whose heart uh, are, are hurting. Yeah. And when this happens, when things reach this emotional extreme, it's an indicator for all of us. Um, During this protest, a community-based education institution called Pu'uhuluhulu University was established to provide free courses on Hawaiian knowledge for visitors and protesters. Like those before, they will stand and fight for their right to Noho Aupuni. Today, we call this resistance. Back then, we just called it Pono. Hawaii Pono Protests didn't just stop at the roadblock. Demonstrations against the construction of a third telescope have since taken place not only in Hawaii, but throughout the Hawaiian and Pacific diasporas across the globe. As of the release of this episode, the protests are ongoing. This is Shabi Bach reading an excerpt of the poem Interwoven by Craig Santos Perez. come from an island and you come from a continent. Yet we are both made of stories that teach us to remember our origins and genealogies. To care for the land and waters and to respect the interconnected sacredness of all things. I come from an island and you come from a continent. 
yet we both know invasion. Magellan breached our reef 30 years after Columbus raided your shore. We were baptized in disease, violence, and genocide. We both carry the deep grief of survival. I come from an island and migrated to your continent. Hundreds of thousands of us have settled in your territories for military service, education, healthcare, and jobs. We were so busy searching for better lives, we didn't even ask your permission. We didn't even recognize how our American dream was your American nightmare. Before colonial rule by either the Americans, Japanese, or Spanish, the island of Guam belonged to the Chamorro people who had lived there for more than 3,000 years. Like the Polynesians, the Chamorros were some of the most skilled seafarers in the world, and their culture spread to the other Mariana islands of Saipan and Rota. In 1521, the Chamorros made contact with the West during Magellan's voyage to circumnavigate the Earth. Spain would not officially claim Guam until 1565, and for 300 years, Guam served as a way station on the Manila Galleon trade. The Spanish era ended in 1898 after the U.S. took control of Spain's remaining colonial territories. For much of that time, Guam was an important naval base that linked the mainland U.S. to the Philippines. In 1929, the people of Guam were granted American citizenship, which triggered small groups of Chamorros to immigrate to Hawaii and the West Coast. Japan has therefore undertaken a surprise offensive extending throughout the Pacific area. During the same time when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, it also invaded other territories, including Guam. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Hong Kong. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Guam. Last night, Japanese forces attacked the Philippine Islands. For 31 months, the Chamorros were subject to seizure of lands, forced labor, executions, and other activities aimed at making the island a permanent Japanese territory after the war. The fleet has come to this staging base, itself so recently in Japan's, loaded and powered for the attack on Guam. The Japanese occupation ended on July 21, 1944, when the U.S. Marines took back control of Guam. Today, that date is celebrated as Liberation their Day. Their bravery, their sacrifice, and their will to live, we call them our greatest generation. They are our parents, our grandparents, and our great-grandparents. They are eight years of American sovereignty, the men and women of the Philippines received their independence. The post-war world ushered former colonies onto the international stage as independent countries. However, Guam and the other Mariana Islands continue to be U.S. territories. Since then, the military presence in Guam has only intensified. 27% of the island is owned by the U.S. military, and the island's roads and freeways bear names like the Purple Heart Highway, and Marine Corps Drive. 
Chamorros from Guam also serve in the military at much higher rates than any other state or territory. Today, of the more than 168,000 people who live in Guam, one in eight are military veterans. In fact, during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, so many Chamorros were stationed there that many thought the troops were part of a contingent from the non-existent independent country of Guam. As mentioned before, there are 168,000 people in Guam, but only 60,000, 37% of the population, are Chamorro. Today though, there are 147,000 Chamorros living on the mainland, more than there are in Guam, Saipan, and Rota combined. My grandparents live in Guam, and for part of this segment, I interviewed my papa. The beginning is kind of very rough. I was born just before the U.S. took Guam back from the Japanese. Well, they did the liberation uh, July 21st, and I was born uh, February 17th. I was already like four, some month when uh, the U.S. came in and took back Guam. Japan had heavily occupied his family's village during the war, and when the Americans came back, they turned the village into a naval base. The military built the, the village of San Rita mm-hmm. for the... Uh, the people of Sumai, the uh, Navy was using the, the Natsu Harbor and stuff. So it was like really busy for the military. And uh, it's kind of dangerous for the people of Sumai to be living among the military. And they have to wait until they build Santa Rita and then they move him up here. That's the story. I just keep hearing uh, all the older people. Saying the beginning is rough. I don't really remember all that, but anyway, I made it. I made it through. Papa and five of his six brothers all joined the military during the Vietnam War, like most young Chamorros during that time. After the war, and then uh, everybody, every young man here in Guam, they they wanted to join the military. You know, yeah. So that's how my uh, oldest brother Tommy, as soon as he can. Join the military, he went in. He went in the Air Force. There's seven of us, boys. I got drafted. And uh, six of us went in the military. Six out of seven. I was drafted uh, Yeah, when Vietnam was already started having a problem. My military life, I just went to basic training in Fort Ord. Then I went to AIT and got stationed in Fort Sioux, Oklahoma, and then Vietnam. I, I only spent like six months in Vietnam because we went by ship and it took us like almost a month to get there. I was in Vietnam and they asked me if I wanted to re-enlist and I told those guys, do you think anybody that's really that crazy to, to re-enlist when he's in the middle of the war? So, so they took me out. Instead of coming back to Guam, I got discharged in uh, Northern California. We have a, a wall here that uh, has got all the names of those guys that uh, they got killed mm-hmm. in Vietnam. Did you grow up with any of them? Oh, yes. As a matter of fact, from my village, there, there's like four of them. The first one that, that got killed in Vietnam is... Uh, my best friend uh, in high school. Uh, we're the same grade together, graduated together and everything else. And uh, uh, he was uh, one of my best friends in high school. And 
he was the first one that got killed in Vietnam. He was only there like a couple months before me. He was the first Samoa that got killed in Vietnam. Jesus Rosa Mariano was killed in September 1965. He was 20 years old. The other ones was, uh, were my neighbors. We, we grew up together in the same neighborhood. And, and uh, they were like a couple of years older than me. And they, they went in the, the military first, but I guess uh, uh, they made the military their career. So they ended up in Vietnam and they got killed. Hawaiians and Chamorros only represent a fraction of the Pacific diasporas. In the future, we hope to produce more episodes about other islanders and perhaps take deeper dives beyond their arrival stories. Some may argue that Pacific islanders should be completely separate from Asian Americans. But as we've learned today, these histories are so close to each other that it's sometimes difficult to separate them. That is why this podcast will continue covering stories of Pacifica just as much as it covers Asian America. The war in Vietnam would mark a pivotal moment in the formation of AAPI identity. When the term was in its infancy, it originally only applied to the shared histories of the first wave of immigrants. But in the years preceding the fall of Saigon, more than 1.2 million people from the countries of Laos, Vietnam, and Cambodia would relocate to the United States. Part 3 of Arrivals looks at those communities and how they are changing the way we define Asian American. I heard about a place called Little Saigon Everybody's got my face so mine won't have to grow so long That's our story. Until next week, I'm Zach Anderson. For more content like this, visit our website at chopsticksalley.com. You can also check out our nonprofit website, chopsticksalley.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at chopsticksalley and chopsticksalleyart. Have a topic you'd like for us to discuss? Send us an email at chopsticksally at gmail.com.